This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Should true believers be anticipating the soon return of Christ? And if so, how soon? Well, the left-behind author, at least one of the two authors, Jerry Jenkins, New York Times bestseller, is urging Christians to be ready because, he says, the pre-rapture end times prophecies have been fulfilled. Jenkins, who is well known for his end times fictional series Left Behind, is also the author of The Chosen Books, which coincide with his son's hit series, The Chosen. He said Christians are watching and living through the prophetic timeline. It's clear, he said, we're heading for something, and it seems sooner than ever now. The prophecies do say that Israel will be attacked from all sides, which seems like that's happening right now. And then it says that the great bear of the north and the great army of the east will also attack. We really need to keep an eye on that, he said. Although no one knows the day of the hour of Christ's return, not even the Son of Man, he said, it's sort of folly for us to try to predict the day or the hour, but I think all the prophecies have been fulfilled that need to be before the rapture, he said. And now that should be an urgent call for us to keep making sure that people aren't left behind and telling them the truth. Jenkins went on to encourage all believers in Christ to share the gospel and prepare for the Messiah's return. He said, we need to be ready. Need to be ready. Well, that's a good message for all of us, depending on when we think the rapture is going to take place. Yes, a very good message. And when he says that all of the events that uh, need to occur before the rapture takes place, Well, perhaps he is forgetting quite a number of things that the Bible says need to be taken care of before the rapture takes place whenever it does take place. And so, we want to talk a little bit about that here today on Viewpoint, but bottom line, we need to be prepared. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight paths for our feet. So, should true believers be anticipating the soon return of Christ? Yes, How soon? We don't know, but soon and very soon, very likely we're going to see the king. Andre Crouch and his disciples notified us of that back in the 1970s, and uh, it was the Gaither vocal band, Bill and Gloria Gaither, who sang the song, The King is Coming, The King is Coming, and that was in the 1970s as well. So perhaps all of these things are anticipatory for what The Bible foretells as the coming of the Lord, which is supposed to be seen by professing Christians as the blessed hope of the church. Now, if that were the blessed hope of the church, why are we not considering ourselves more blessed to prepare the way? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Maybe we're not really so convinced that Christ is on the way very soon. On the other hand... Maybe we should be. So today on Viewpoint, we're going to be taking a look at some of these things that I'm glad that you have tuned in today. Viewpoint always determines destiny. It's not, we're not talking about here this program. We're talking about our own viewpoints. Our viewpoints concerning 
history, our viewpoints concerning prophecy, our viewpoints concerning what God has said, our viewpoints concerning what Jesus and the apostles have said. There are a lot of uh, scoffers out there. Some of them are pretending to be scholars. They're even belittling those who bring focus to the second coming, saying, well, that's just fear tactics. No, it's a faith tactic because God told us that it was going to take place and Jesus repeatedly warned, as did the apostles, that we need to be ready. So this would seem to be the season. And the season seems to be moving more quickly than people would expect. We've seen the rebirth of Israel going all the way back to 1948, which most uh, prophecy experts believe is the, uh, the single most important event to signal the, uh, the season, the season in which Christ would return. The Lord will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land, prophesied Isaiah. Jeremiah echoed exactly the same hope. He said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands, whither he has driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Well, friends, that's exactly what's happening. And as we speak right now, there are somewhere close to 8 million Jewish people in Israel and uh, another couple of million people who are not Jewish who are in Israel. Depending upon who you talk to, there are somewhere around 15, 16 million Jewish people in the world. And depending upon who you talk to, and depending upon how you define as a Christian or a Messianic Jew, we're looking at somewhere between 12 and 13 and 30,000 of them in Israel. So there's a very, very small percentage of Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus as Messiah. But what we do know is that the Jewish people have been in the process of being regathered, beginning with those from Russia, with the great airlift, uh, several decades ago, and now with all of the hoopla, uh, the attacks, the anti-Semitism that's going on, uh, not only in uh, with the attack of Hamas and the Muslim world, but also the attacks within the Western world. All over the Western world, including the United States, anti-Semitism is growing dramatically. And so this is setting a stage, an attitudinal stage for the prophecy of Zechariah that all the nations ultimately will surround Israel in Jerusalem. And that will activate Jesus Christ to come and save them as their final existential hope. And they will look upon him whom they appeared and will weep for him as for their only son. So God means business, friends. And, uh, Uh, These events that are taking place must take place. God said to Jeremiah that I will send forth hunters and fishers to gather the Jewish people from all over the world uh, in fulfillment of his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that uh, I will bless those that bless you, I will curse those that curse you. He gave them 
the meets and bounds of the land referred to as the promised land that refers that refers to a, a, a place a stretching all the way from Egypt all the way up to Le, uh, Lebanon and from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River, an area of space that is many times larger than what Israel currently occupies. And as we have indicated earlier, God says the land is his. It doesn't belong to Israel, it belongs to him. But he has given an eternal leasehold to Israel. So he's fulfilling his covenant. Whether Israel does or not, he's fulfilling his covenant. Are you filling, fulfilling your covenant to the Lord? That's the real question, isn't it? We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Could Christians expect the Lord to return soon, the blessed hope of the church? I believe yes. The question is, how soon is soon? How do you define soon? Well, that will depend upon God himself, won't it? But since the rebirth of the state of Israel, a lot of very astounding things have been taking place because God means business. In fact, he forewarned the nations of the earth. He said, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, Keep not back my son, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. So that's exactly what's happened. Ethiopia has been giving them up. India has been giving them up from the east. Russia is giving them up. Yeah, they're coming from everywhere. In fact, in 2006, more Jews made Aliyah or returned to the land of Israel from North America than ever before in history. God said, I, I, I'm going to hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them. When we have a global financial debacle driving the Jews to return for the West, that's part of God hissing for the Jewish people. The Jew will soon find no safe harbor, even in historically hospitable Western countries as economic upheavals and dramatic population shifts and global politics, as we're seeing right now before our eyes, make the Jews the scapegoats for the world's problems and the objects of scathing scorn. Ultimately, friends, even as now, the news today says that Jewish people around the world, and particularly in the West, are very increasingly concerned, even scared, that a new holocaust is in being born. A new holocaust. Well, the horrors of the holocaust, unfortunately, according to biblical prophecy, are going to pale in the face of the hate-filled anti-Semitic sentiment that's soon to be unleashed upon the world. It's going to result in the annihilation of two-thirds of the then-living descendants of Jacob. If you want to know where we find that, you can look at the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. So, 
even as the Jewish people are rejected and ostracized globally, so too will be the whole nation of Israel. In fact, you remember that the prophet Balaam, back there in the book of Numbers, chapter 23, said, The people, Israel, shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Now, Israel wants to be reckoned among the nations. Wants to be accepted. God said, no, I want them to be acceptable to me. I don't want them to see seek acceptance among the nations. I want this to seek acceptance to me. In the same way, friend, God is saying to you and to me as professing Christians, I don't want you to seek acceptance by the world. I want you to come out from among the world and be separate. The Apostle Paul wrote about it and says, Come out from among them and be you separate, and I will be your uh, father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. So as God said to Israel, so he says to us, if we seek to be grafted in by faith. So when we seek to uh, uh, fraternize and play footsie with the culture, in order to be accepted by the culture, we are necessarily rejecting in whole or in part our desire to be accepted by God. That has been Israel's history throughout the whole Old Testament and even up to this day. And it is becoming increasingly the history of professing Christians, particularly in the West and even more particularly in America. So question. Has the fullness of the Gentiles come in yet? The fullness of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Has the fullness of the Gentiles come in yet? I'm not sure. Maybe not. And if not, the rapture could not occur yet. Because the fullness of the Gentiles has to be complete. Now, we do know that the tributaries of history and prophecy are converging like never before into what I call a surging maelstrom, rushing inexorably toward the final events of history, foretold by the ancient prophets and the apostles and our Lord himself. He talked about the days of Noah. Violence covering the earth. We're there. I spoke about that yesterday in addressing law enforcement personnel. One of the problems that we have in trying to hold our law enforcement personnel throughout the country to a standard is we're requiring them to do something that God never expected them to do. He never expected them to have to control a completely and unfettered violent people, in this country at least, because our government and constitution was made for a moral and Christian people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So therefore, law enforcement, to be a minister for our good, was to 
take care only of the unruly because the majority were to be faithful and obedient and lawful. But we have become a lawless people. So how in the world can we expect law enforcement officers that we used to call peacemakers, how can we expect them to make peace when we can't even keep peace in our homes and in our churches, when we refuse to obey God, when we have become lawless in our own churches? I'm tempted right now to tell you a very glaring story. I'm resisting the temptation right now. The days of Lot. As it was in the days of Lot, Jesus said, it's going to be just like that before my second coming. Well, we're seeing all of that, aren't we? We're seeing the lasciviousness of life. We're seeing uh, the practice of homosexuality, which God calls an abomination. We're seeing transgenderism and now bestiality and all kinds of other perversions come in. We've seen the divorce culture. We've seen the breakdown of the family in a nation that supposedly was dedicated to being under God. We're seeing it all happen right before our eyes. Behavioral and attitudinal conditions are just as the Apostle Paul described. Remember he said there would be perilous times in these last days? People would be lovers of themselves. Well, aren't we living in the selfie generation? The me, me, me generation? Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents? Who are you to tell me that I should obey anybody? Who are you to tell me as a school teacher that I should uh, do what you ask me to do? Who are you, law enforcement officers, to tell me that I should do anything that you ask or command me to do? I'm lawless. I'm a law unto myself. Thank you very much. And that's, in fact, what many Christians are, in effect, saying to God himself. He says, I hate divorce. We say, well, yeah, that's okay, Lord, for you. But for me, I'm going to do what I want to do. When Jesus said, whoever marries the one that commits adultery, whoever divorces the one, divorces his wife, commits adultery, and whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery, we say, yes, but uh, that's what you say, Lord. I understand that, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Don't you understand our times? So, you see, we're a lawless people. We just are a lawless people. And the Apostle Paul said the day would come, the scandal, the spiritual scandal of our conditions would be so great that even within our churches, they would not endure sound doctrine. Not put up with it. We'd heed to ourselves teachers having itch and ears, right? So the question again, are these the last days? Are these our last days? What would you say? It seems to me that the the evidence confirming the matching of mankind and our world and human society and religious thinking to that described as characteristic of and defining the last days is overwhelming. It's more than a preponderance of the evidence. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Shockingly descriptive. And we see a reflection of ourselves, our culture, our society, and the world in, yeah, in a, in a biblical mirror. 
that ought to cause us to shrink back in horror if we're realistic about it. But, but the attitudes and the behaviors and spiritual conditions are not only reference points. Prophetic fulfillment is accelerating at breathtaking speed, friends. Never in history have we seen such a confluence of precise and profound moral and spiritual conditions, prophetic happenings, and horrors even occurred with the technological capacity to fulfill them. So, here is my contention today. Mankind is on notice. Mankind is duly served. The church is duly served. Pastors are duly served. Professing Christians are duly served. You've been served with notice from on high. So we would well be advised to prepare the way of the Lord in our lives for history's final hour. So the question is, how should we respond? That's what we want to spend the rest of the program talking about. How should we then respond? Well, one of the things we have to do is respond in faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and that means we have to embrace truth, and we live out the truth by faith, the whole truth. We must prepare to meet our God, like Amos said. We have to prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for righteousness living in a worldly wilderness, like the like uh, the prophet Isaiah said. And we can't fear man. God has not given you and me the spirit of fear, friend, but of power and love and a sound mind. We quote that so regularly, but I'm not sure we really believe it yet. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous is bold as a lion. The fear of man is a snare. It's going to lead us to deception and destruction. So my encouragement to you is the same encouragement that Paul gives to the Ephesians when he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Strengthen your heart in advance with the word of faith. Be strong, as God said through Moses to Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid. Neither be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. Don't fear those, Jesus said, who can do bodily harm. Do not fear persecution. It's going to come if you're living a godly life. Do not fear what man could do to you. We have to fear God and not, and we have to be concerned about Satan's deception. Deception is very dangerous, and that's what's grabbing the minds and hearts of true followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about for the balance of the program here. Can saints be seduced? If not, why did Paul tell his ministry sidekick Timothy, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits? And why did he say in the book of Thessalonians that before the identity of the Antichrist is revealed, there is going to be a massive apostasy or falling away from the faith? That's a question to be answered in our own minds and hearts. It's a rhetorical question for this moment right now in time. You say, boy, this is serious stuff. It is serious stuff. It's sobering. That's why the apostles said, sober up. 
Stop playing the game. It's time to get serious to sober up. So, we're sobering up. We're not to get angry about it. We're not to feel, be filled with worry and fear. No. Fear has torment. God doesn't want us to walk in fear. He wants us to walk in faith, to trust him. So, our trust is being tested. Just understand that. Your trust is being tested. So, we take a look now at this matter of deception and uh, how it is assaulting God's people. I hope you'll stay tuned. You might want to get a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. $15 on our website, saveus.org. It'll change your luck. We'll be back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. We are all in a position to have to make some very serious decisions, both one time and continually. As we talk about the truth about deception, as we talk about uh, what is attacking us, our greatest concern right now, from God's viewpoint, from the viewpoint of the Apostle Paul, from the viewpoint of the Apostle Peter, Deception was the big deal. Two days before his crucifixion, as you know, Jesus was gathered with his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, and they asked him what would be the sign of his coming and at the end of the age. The very first thing he said in response was, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now remember, he was talking to his disciples, the chosen ones. They were also the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, heirs according to the promise. But he was warning them. He wasn't warning the unbelievers. He was warning them. In fact, all of the warnings of Scripture, for the most part, are directed to believers. In the Old Testament, to those who were called by God as the ecclesia, the church in the wilderness, so to speak, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, heirs according to the promise. The warnings were to them. In the New Testament, the warnings are to them and to us as Gentiles, Gentile believers. Because the unbelievers, Jesus said, are deceived 
already. They're already unsaved. They're already judged. They're, you can read about it in John chapter 3, right there by John 3.16. You need to read that. Very few people will read that. The pagans are condemned already. They don't need to be warned in that sense. They need to be won, but not warned because it's the believers that need to be warned because they're the ones, the warmest audience that God has, that's what he's concerned about, is going to lose their place. You say, well, how is that possible? Didn't Jesus say no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand? Yeah, he did. Nobody can come along and take you out of the Father's hand, but you can, by your own decisions. Otherwise, you make a mockery of the rest of the word. Jesus' words, the Apostle Paul's words, Peter's words, John's words, you make a mockery of them. Now, it might be easy. Believism is something you want to believe, but it's not consistent with the rest of the word of God. Nobody else can take you out of the Father's hand. Only you can. You can be threatened. You can have a gun pointed at you. You can have somebody make you sign a con- try to make you sign a contract to give up your faith or whatever. But they can't make you do it. You might have to suffer death in the process, but they can't make you do it. But you can choose to disenfranchise yourself. Otherwise, the whole concept of salvation by grace through faith is made a mockery. God's not going to have rebels in his house. People who claim at one time to be his followers and then fall away and live debaucherous, ungodly lives, he's not going to have that in his house, friends. You wouldn't have it in your house, and he's not going to have it in his house, because he said, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. So let's think about that. So, our direction determines our destiny. So we want to talk a a few things about the truth about deception uh, in the balance of the program here today. And uh, we don't want to go into too deeply into this, but I want to hit some points that I think will be helpful to us and be a good reminder. First of all, the nature of deception. Deception is deceptive. By very nature. It's deceptive, friends. Repeat it. Repeat it to yourself. Deception is deceptive. That's why it's deception. And it's the saints that can be seduced into deception. So if deception was were not deceptive, there would be no deception, would there? And that's precisely why deception is so very dangerous to our eternal destiny. So, I mean, we could say a fair statement that no deceived person ever believes he or she is deceived unless and until that deception is revealed. And even then, most still refuse to believe they are deceived. A pastor yesterday to my face and in the face of many other people did exactly that.
made statements that were totally contrary to the word and will and way of God, denied that which was true in order to try to pander to the tender sensibilities of people. So our our times are enshrouded in deception, spiritually, politically, and economically, militarily, even emotionally. It's everywhere. As Paul said, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And many are going to follow their pernicious or deadly ways, said Peter. They're going to be ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they resist the truth. They are of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. That's where we are, in summary. So, Jesus made it clear, the Apostle Paul and Peter made it clear, that deception dominates the end times. And deception, by its very nature, forces us to dance with sin. When we start the initial dance with sin, we compromise. We don't think we're compromising because it usually comes in small pieces, small doses. But then it floods in. Like the poet once talked about the fog coming in on little cat feet. But then, after it's come in on little cat feet, it grows rapidly until it engulfs you. That's what deception does. Through deception and deceit, we get deceitfulness of sin, hardness of heart, opening the door to continued progression of deception. It comes in seemingly small, insidious, and deception crouches at the door, crouches at the door, and say, will you dance with me? And then it comes in by degrees. It doesn't come in all at once. It comes in by degrees. Because if it came in all at once, most of us would resist. But no, it comes in by degrees. It seduces us. And it seems desirable. Deception seems desirable on its face. You know, it's kind of like the song from uh, the 1970s, I believe it was, uh, a Christian song songster sang it, very popular. How can it be wrong, or it can't be wrong when it feels so right? Really? That song was pure seduction. It was a beautiful song. But sung by a Christian, that was deception, my friends. Pat Boone's daughter did us no service in singing that song. It was that song that opened the way to the divorce and remarriage cycle in America. Now, another thing is that deception requires our decision. I'm going to say some things here that uh, I've said before, but people don't want to hear. Nobody, no man, no woman, is ever deceived against their will. Never. There is a will to be deceived. Every man and woman is ultimately deceived by choice. Now, that should be I suppose, either consoling or terrifying. But deception requires your decision 
requires my decision. You cannot be deceived against your will. If if you could be deceived against your will, God couldn't hold you responsible. Right? And your decision determines destiny. And your viewpoint determines your decision. And that's why we say regularly here on this program, viewpoint determines destiny. And it does. Decision always determines destiny. And our viewpoint determines our decisions. The final test of true worship is going to be defined by the decisions of professing believers. And a choice to trust the Antichrist system by receiving the mark of the beast is going to reveal true worship. And it will consign the recipients to the torment of eternal damnation, the outpouring of the wrath of God, no matter what the Left Behind series said. I hope you heard what I just said. We, want to, we don't want to give any place to the devil, friends. No place. We're not ignorant of his devices. Our flesh cannot be allowed to overpower our faith. Just can't. That's, that's our spiritual warfare. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly. They're not swords and guns. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds that would take us unawares. We have to conform all of our thoughts, our ways, our words, our deeds, to the word, will, and ways of the Lord. That's how we wage spiritual warfare. Now, before we go further, I'm going to make available to you the book, Seduction of the Saints, Staying Pure in a World of Deception. I think it is going to be so helpful to so many people, many hundreds, thousands. It's an $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us and save up your ministries. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Deception is usually wrapped around a nugget of truth. And that's why it's saleable. For instance... Here's a nugget of truth. God is love. Yes, God is love. But what does that mean? 
And how does the God of love portray himself? How does he self-identify in his word? Well, we find out what that looks like in the entire Old Testament. That's why most people don't want to read it. That's why many pastors don't want to preach from it. Because it is God's self-revelation of his total character as a loving God. A loving God ordered the children of Israel to destroy wickedness out of their midst, both in their own congregation and in the surrounding nations. Ordered the destruction. Because a loving God will not allow a little leaven to come in his family to destroy the whole lump. A loving God will not allow lawlessness in his family. Because he's a God of truth. And he's a God of justice. And he's a God of peace. And lawlessness does not breed peace. Lawlessness breeds war and chaos and disconcertion and division. So when deception comes, it's usually wrapped around some nugget of truth. Often wrapped in religious robes, kind of giving it an aura of rightness. That's why the scripture says that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth, knowing the whole truth, not just part of it. So the God of love hates evil. He said the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And what is evil? Evil is that which is contrary to the word, will, and ways of God. So when God says, I hate divorce, divorce is evil in the mind and heart of God. And anyone who promotes it is promoting evil, even in the name of Christ. So pastors, prophets, and presidents are no exception. They, like we... Try to find ways to wrap a religious robe around carnal or fleshly motivations, making us all complicit in our own deception. We buy into it, in other words, because we have a will to buy into it. We want what we want, and we want it when we want it, how we want it, and where we want it. If I'm not happy in my marriage, I want to be divorced, I want to find pursue that frisky filly or that handsome jet out there, that I'm not married to, and so I'm willing to justify what I want to do, and I'll even use the Bible to do it even when it's totally contrary to God's express word. So just yesterday, I had a pastor, after I had spoken rather directly and profoundly to an audience, I had a pastor who stood up behind me and repudiated almost everything that had been said and embraced Deception embraced the love of God and repudiated the word, the will, and the ways of God with regard to obedience, with regard to living a a life that is in consideration of the whole word, will, and ways of God, and that does not embrace all of the sexual promiscuity and so on of our time. It's astounding. I experienced an in-your-face example of this yesterday. 
And deception is always pending, friends. It's always lurking there, like in the shadows. It's just there. The fear of man is a snare. If you fear men, you're going to be deceived because you're going to conform your word, your will, and your ways to humankind rather than God. That's what Adam did in the garden. He feared Eve. Eve seduced him with her feminine fatale, and uh, he said, yes, ma'am. And he ate of the apple, even though God had spoken directly to him, don't do it. Well, we don't know it was an apple, the fruit. So they both were judged. But Adam, Eve was deceived. Adam was not even deceived. He was intentionally seduced. In other words, he had a will to be seduced and acted accordingly. And the rest of it is history. You and I are suffering as a result of it. And also, deception is revealed in what I call darkened character. It affects how we think. It affects how we live. It affects how we believe. It affects our words. It affects our actions. It affects the nature of our conversation. Is it not a breach of integrity when I what I say I believe is not displayed in the way I live, in my choices, my attitudes, and my actions? When the fruit of my life is not revealing the professed root of my faith? What do we call that? It's hypocrisy, isn't it? But hypocrisy is born of deception. And the interesting thing is that God says, I'm going to bring the hidden things of darkness out into the light. I'm going to reveal it for what it is. And if it doesn't happen during our lifetime, it's going to happen ultimately at the judgment. You remember Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham cared for Lot and brought him alongside on his journey from Ur of the Chaldees and from Haran. And uh, finally, God had prospered both of them so much that the land could not handle all of their flocks and so on. So uh, there was contention that was arising between uh, Lot's herdmen and Abraham's. So Abraham said to Lot, look, the land can't handle all of us, so I'll tell you what, you make a choice. You either go east or I'll go east. If you go east, I'll go west. The Bible says that Lot chose to go east. Well, that's not exactly how he said it. The Bible says that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. In other words, there was something about Sodom and that area that seduced him in his mind, in his heart, and led him in that direction. And he justified it. He had reason within his mind, and that's what he chose. He said it was 
it was a, a nice, well-lubricated area, well-watered area like the land of Egypt. In other words, so it was kind of like going back to Egypt again. So when he got there, and he's lived there for a while, he realized that things weren't all that nice in, in, in uh, Sodom. A lot of immorality, and it was very uncomfortable to him. The sodomy, very uncomfortable to him. So, ultimately, that was tested when God sent a couple of angels in there to warn about destroying Sodom, Sodom because of its unrighteousness. And Lot brought those angels into his house, and the men of Sodom gathered around, pounded on the door, and said, we want those men, bring them out that we might know them. That's a, a biblical term for have uh, sex with them. That's exactly what happened in San Francisco about 15 years ago. At a church, on a Wednesday night, the sodomizers gathered around, and they pounded on the door of the church, even while the police were standing around, and they screamed, we want your children, we want your children. San Francisco has pitched its tent towards Sodom. Tel Aviv, Israel, has pitched its tent towards Sodom. New Orleans has pitched its tent towards Sodom. Las Vegas, Nevada, has pitched its tent towards Sodom. Have you? Do you love the life of Sodom, the going culture, the popular culture that infatuates so many Christians today? Do you love that so much that it seduced you to quasi-embrace what's going on there? You see... The glittering ways of the world are very compromising and bringing many, many professing believers' relationship with God to a standstill and even reversing it. It's a lure, the lure of popular culture. It's like a siren call. And its appearance of success in drawing people has invaded the entire evangelical church even fundamentalist churches. So while deploring with Lot the abominable practice of homosexuality, we've still been seduced by the spirit of Sodom. The saints have been seduced from the pulpit to pew by the spirit of Sodom. And God is judging that salacious spirit. And Jesus said, just as it was in the days of Lot, so it was will be when I return. Are we there yet? Lot's sons-in-law mocked him and their wives when the angel, the angels took Lot and his daughters and his wife out of Sodom. They mocked. They said, "We're not going anywhere." This is a cool happening place. And they were destroyed with it. The angel warned Lot and his family, do not look back. Do not look back. Why? 
because there was great allure. They loved Sodom. They loved the happening place. Lots of energy, lots of color, lots of this and stuff going on there in Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, no, don't look back. He told the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, don't look back. Don't try to go back. They said, would to God we had died in the land of Egypt. He said, okay, as you've spoken, so be it. You're all going to die in the wilderness as if it were Egypt. You're not going to make it to the promised land. Don't look back. So what happened? Lot's wife couldn't resist the temptation. And she looked back. And what happened? She became a pillar of salt because what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, as God poured down fire and brimstone upon it, it was that whole area was salted. And she was salted with it. Question. When Jesus said... In the book of Luke, as it was in the days of Lot, what do you think he meant? That's going to describe his the time of his second coming, as it was in the days of Lot. Are we there yet? When he said, remember Lot's wife, what was Jesus saying? Don't let the spirit of the age and the culture seduce you away from your love for the Lord and his kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the other things that are evil will be added to you. Do you believe that? Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints. I think it is going to be very helpful to you in these times. uh, Read it slowly. Absorb it. I think the Holy Spirit will speak to you. $15, we'll put the $18 book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us. Add $5 for postage and handling. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Remember, the just shall live by faith. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.